Welcome to Alter Everything, a podcast about data science and analytics culture. My name is Maddie Johansson, and I'm on the community team at Alteryx. I'm joined by comedian, podcaster, and writer, Deborah Francis-White. She's the host of the award-winning podcast, The Guilty Feminist, which has become a cultural phenomenon that tours around the world. Her book, The Guilty Feminist, is a Sunday Times bestseller, and her op-ed pieces, columns, and interviews have appeared in The Guardian, The Telegraph, and The New York Times. She was a guest speaker at the Alteryx Inspire Conference in Amsterdam, where she helped host our product sneak session that featured innovative ideas for the Alteryx platform. We'll dive into that in this conversation. We also talked about the science of using comedy to help people feel included, and Deborah shares refreshing tips for how to approach networking events that can sometimes be a little stuffy, intimidating, and let's face it, not always everybody's favorite event to go to. Let's get started. Well, I am here with the talented and renowned Deborah Francis White. I am Stop so- it, Maddie. Stop it. <laughs> Welcome to Alter Everything. We are so thrilled to have you. And it was so exciting seeing you at the Product Sneaks um, here at Inspire Amsterdam earlier today. I am already charmed by you, Maddie. And Sneaks, <laughs> what a joy Sneaks was. Great name, by the way. Sneaks. Yeah. Just a sneak peek. Um, they were fantastic. So there were all of these brilliant thinkers and inventors, creators pitching their idea and saying, hey, if we made this, would you use it? And then the audience were cheering at points where they felt that they would use it or they really wanted it. Standing ovations virtually. It was a really good time. It was so much fun. Yeah, I was like a neck and neck I heard with the voting too. At the end, everybody voted for their favorite, um, their favorite sneak. And it was just really exciting to see who won. Nicole Johnson, mm-hmm. shout out Nicole Johnson. Um, she's one of our former super users and now she works at All Tricks. Um, but big fan of hers and her idea won, which is awesome. It was absolutely fun. Phenomenal. So she did the hot dub time machine one, didn't she? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where, I think we should call it that. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> where you you go back in time and you, you, because you altered the document, but you did it while you were jet lagged and had too many wines or <laughs> the intern has gone in, messed something up or whatever. People really cheered for that. Apparently interns, if you're listening to this, you're messing things up all the time. Uh, <laughs> don't make changes without permission. But so she could just go, hey, let's go back to Thursday lunchtime, pretend this never happened. And imagine if you could do that in life, how wonderful it would be. Well, yeah, I mean, like the thing is, is that you as our Sneaks host, you were so great at being very inclusive with all of the with your understanding of what was going on and really pumping up the presenters. I feel like you did a really great job of making them all feel really proud of their work um, while also, you know, like having some fun banter, obviously, just to, you know, keep it fun and light. Um, It definitely speaks to, you know, the guilty feminist messaging, exploring noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities that undermine them as your tagline. And so to start our conversation, I'd love for you to kind of just break down this science of using comedy to really make people feel inclusive. Well, comedy is very disarming. Yeah. Can be. It can be. Um, The question is always, for me, who is in on the joke? Uh, Because at traditional comedy clubs, often I felt somehow like the butt of the joke or excluded. Mm -hmm. So... Back in the day when I first started doing comedy, I would almost invariably be the only woman on the bill. And a lot of men would come on before me and do 10 minutes that was quite disparaging about like their girlfriend that had a kind of violent twist to it. Mm. And then they'd say uh, an MC would get up, compare, we'd get up and go, and now we've got a woman one, but don't worry, she's funny. I've seen her like really 
something that m- said to the audience, women aren't funny. And then I would come up and I would have to spend Like the you're first- the exception. Yeah, I'd have to spend the first five minutes convincing them that I was as good as the guys. And I have genuinely seen people in the front row when I've come on stage say with their mouth to their friend, I don't find women funny. I don't like female comedians. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's unbelievable, but that happens. And it's women sometimes that say it as well. And what happens every single time you have a good gig in a regional comedy club or something like that, someone will come up to you at the bar afterwards. If you've got, if you've smashed it, if you had a great night, someone will come up and go, just wanted to say, um, I don't normally find women funny, but I thought you were hilarious. And I'm like, what What am I meant to do with this? I, yeah, I, like, I, I, uh, thank, thank you. you for resting your bigotry for a full 15 minutes. Oh, Imagine going yeah. to get a haircut and saying to the hairdresser, I don't, sorry, um, my normal hairdresser was off and I, I don't think men can cut hair. <laughs> And you have proven me wrong because this isn't horrible. Like imagine yeah. saying to your accountant, I had no idea women could add up. Or right. your doctor, you've stitched up this gash on my leg despite your gender. Like it would be so bizarre. Totally. Yeah. But of course there was a time when there were no female doctors. And in, I know the history of, the, uh, of Britain in this, a woman called Elizabeth Garrett Anderson desperately wanted to be a doctor. And the, the hoop she had to jump through because none of the universities would admit a woman, but she found one. It was called like the Apothecary School, something like that. You could look it up. But she found one college that had forgotten to put on the website, so to speak, uh, no women, because they thought it was like saying no zebras need apply. Like, why would you even Mm. need to say that? Mm -hmm. But because of that, there was a loophole. And because she aced the exam, they had to let her in. Mm -hmm. And she, of course, aced everything and, you know, she was so grateful to be there and, you know, working twice as hard as the guys, all of that sort of stuff. And she passed with flying colours, but she wanted a full medical degree. And she had to learn French well enough to go to the Sorbonne where they were offering degrees, medical degrees for women. Um, imagine learning, imagine wanting anything enough to learn French well enough to do a degree in it. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I mean, just beyond, Seriously. right? Yeah. So then you go to the Sorbonne. She goes to the Sorbonne. She comes back with a full medical degree. No one will hire her um, because she's a woman. So she thinks, that's fine. I'll set up my own clinic. She sets up her own clinic. No one will come to it. Not women, not children, no one. No one's coming to that because they're like, we don't trust a woman. Women are temperamentally unfit. Women are going to f- faint at the sight of blood. Don't want a woman doctor touching me, looking at me. But then Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, she has a, um, she has a really lucky break, Maddie. Mm. an outbreak of cholera mm, lucky her well done well done Elizabeth Garrett Anderson <laughs> people are so desperate for a doctor it's like the COVID outbreak you know people are so desperate for a doctor in an outbreak of cholera in London in the 1800s that uh, they will even see a woman doctor and then people go oh her bedside manner is really good oh she cured my cholera oh my kid's okay oh well you know and uh, they go oh well maybe we'll go back and see her again we actually liked that now this is the part of the story now that makes Elizabeth Garrett Anderson inclusive because mm. she could have been an exceptional woman and enjoyed being the only female doctor. I'm, like, I'm super special. I'm the only female doctor. No other women can do this, which some women do. Yeah. You know, someone in history have done. Yeah. Um, but what she did was to say, I want more women in medicine and I'm going to open my own school so that women can learn. And she opened a medical school in London that is to this day part of uh, the UCH hospital program there, like as part of um, UCL University, which is very famous, very fabulous university. 
Um, and it's still there today. Now, in Britain today, over half the medics are female. So now if you Amazing. went to the doctor, you wouldn't know, you would toss a coin, it could be a man or a woman. No one would go, oh, it's a female doctor. Like, I don't think anybody would do that now. And in fact, it's more likely to be a woman. And they're trying to, they're trying to corral boys into medicine now because mm. it's becoming uh, a female profession increasingly. And because of that, guess what's happening? The pay and the conditions are getting worse. Because oh. it's a lady profession now, so it's not as valuable anymore. It's not like, oh, uh, you're a doctor. It's like, oh, you're a doctor. Um, mm. So interesting, right? Yeah. What I'm doing in comedy is creating a space where women are not allowed, but where women and people of minority genders are celebrated and centered. And the audience who comes is coming specifically because they want to see this because they're not getting what they want at many Comedy clubs. Yeah. They're feeling the same way I used to feel there. Anxiety induced by some of the jokes, excluded, the butt of the joke, not in on the joke, just generally feeling, uh, and, and comedy clubs have changed as well, to be fair. Some have, some haven't. Uh, so it's not by no means is the Girls Firm is the only space. Obviously, it's part of a wider environment and ecosystem that's uh, changed as a whole. I think that's true to say, but that's the space I'm providing. So when I come to an event like sneaks at all tracks what i'm thinking about is how can i make the audience feel included yeah how can i make each presenter feel included and the, what's interesting too is that in your book um there's a few lines that you had um kind of like grouped together and i've written them down here because i just thought that they were so powerful you said including others is the most powerful, confident thing a person can do. An includer is a leader. And most people we include include us back. And I think that this is a really important conversation. We're having this at Alteryx, like our internal work culture. But I feel like ideally work culture is changing. I feel like we are taking steps in the right direction. Um, but, you know, I do think that sometimes there is that pressure like in a corporate environment to still be perfect. And I think with the guilty feminist messaging, again, it's, you know, like that acknowledging that imperfection and like you can be imperfect, but still learn from things. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on being authentic at work and how you can still be that guilty feminist at work, regardless of that kind of like perfect pressure in that corporate environment? Well, one thing I say that I think has relaxed people who listen to the show or come and see the show live is um, you don't have to be perfect to be a force for meaningful change. Mm -hmm. And I think that is relaxing because I think one reason the Guilty Feminist took off is that uh, women are programmed to feel guilty by, guilty by society. I've really noticed this. If a male comedian has a baby... They start going, I mean, a lot of them like were smoking marijuana and living with their mum and then they got into a relationship, uh, got pregnant and then went, I've got a mouth, another mouth to feed now. I've got to be a responsible father, parent, you know, I've got to go out and make money. And that's when their career takes off because they go, right, I'm going to make, I'm going to make it now. Mm -hmm. I have to make my kid proud. I have to put food on the table and they start booking all this TV and upping their game. And it's like parenthood is... Uh, emboldening their career and I see what happens with female comedians often is like oh she's had a baby I don't know that she's going to want to do this gig she must be breastfeeding mm -hmm. so she probably won't want to do this and it's like her work gets cut in half and 
if she is straight back out, as some women I know are, and they take their babies with and they have a the, you know, the the their second parent or their, you know, help their, you know, they have a childcare situation or relative or whatever comes with, or they have a partner that stays at home with the kid and, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter, whatever they've sorted out, if they are breastfeeding, there's a sort of a mild judgment from people. It's like, oh, she's straight back out. Oh, mm-hmm. she, shouldn't she be at home? And no one now says, not madmen, no one now says, shouldn't she be at home with the baby? But it's more like, oh, is she doing that? Did she just give birth last week? I mean, it happened. How does she do it all? Yeah, you know? but, or, or a little bit of judgment. Mm-hmm. Like someone was saying the other day that someone went, she went into a writer's room but said, well, it's American money. Like it was a British writer saying, but it was a Hollywood job and we kind of need the money. And there was a like apology for it. Whereas if a man had just had a baby... And then he got a job in a big fancy American writer's room. Everyone would be like, they have, oh my God, everything's going their way. Rather mm-hmm. than, should she really be, really? She had a, she gave birth last week. Shouldn't she be bonding? Totally. That was the, that was the implication of it, you know. And it was like, no one was saying it, but there was a little bit of something in the air around it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, what I th- that, that's why I think feminism has become one more thing to feel guilty about. It's like, if you're at home, shouldn't you be with your kids? If you're with kids, shouldn't you be at home? If you don't have kids, isn't it time to start thinking about it? You're 34. Whatever it is, or you didn't have kids, are you selfish? Oh, oh, you didn't have kids, and, or you did have kids, and now are you being a good enough daughter and a good enough partner, a good enough friend? Have you, oh, do you know Tina's running a marathon for cancer research? Have, oh, are you doing anything like that? And then... On top of all that, people have the audacity to go, have you done any self-care this week? Right. Mandy, have you done any self-care? Have you not done enough self-care? You haven't I, had a bubble bath every night? I think they need to feel guilty about not doing enough self-care. I need to do self-care to get over the anxiety of not doing enough self-care. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like feminism had become something, one more thing that women had been trained to feel guilty about. And so just saying, you don't have to be perfect. You know, one of the first things I admitted, I'd say I'm a feminist, but at the top, where we do a little confessional. Yeah. So one of the first things I admitted was, and I was so nervous. I was like, if I admit this, they're going to kick me out of the club. <laughs> but it was this, it was, I'm a feminist, but one time I went on a women's rights march, I popped into a department store to use the loo. When I was in there, I got distracted trying out face cream. <laughs> and when I came out, the march was gone. <laughs> like there was no trace of that march. I had to put my son in a bin and just put my sunglasses on and get on the tube and go home. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm the worst feminist in the world. But when I confessed that, so many women have said to me since, oh, my God, the last Women's March, I just got really overwhelmed by the crowd. Yeah. My feet hurt. I, I have a back pain. And I just felt a bit excited to rain. And my friend and I said, would we just pop into this pub and just have one quick drink? Mm-hmm. And then we just never came out. We ended up going home. We had three <laughs> drinks. Then we went home. And they felt so bad about it. And, you know, just hearing other people go, look, I showed up. I was counted. I did what I could. And then I left. But if you put it on the table and acknowledge it, you, firstly, everyone else laughs and goes, I have done stuff like that. But secondly, if, you, if it is something you want to work on, still put it on the table yeah. and build muscle. Like the next time I went on a march, I stayed much longer. And the next time I went on the march, I went to the end. And so punishing myself and going, I'm no good at marches is the opposite of what I need to be doing. Right, yeah. Instead going, do you know what? I did half a march and I got some face cream. <laughs> like, you know, just... laughing about it it is ironic that's it's funny like you can laugh about it but then use that or maybe next time I do even less maybe next time I don't feel well and I or I've got somewhere to be I've turned up to marches where I know I can only be there for 10 minutes because I've turned up 
I've got, I'm on my way to another event. I've spoken at the march or I've had pictures with people. I've put them on Instagram and said, everyone's got to get down there. It's an amazing cause. And then I've gone on to my other event, yeah. you know, but that's better than not going. Exactly. It's, I don't think it's, I mean, as long as I'm not going, pretending I was there for an hour, like, and I think this idea that we have to be perfect all the time is, it's, it's eating us alive. But even within sort of, I would say my community, no matter how much a company or an activist group or an individual tries to do, someone will find fault and there'll be a pylon that you tried to consciously cast this show, but guess what Guess what? you left out? Or when this show was in this location, there was this kind of person in it and now it's been recast. There's these kind of people, but you left out that kind of person. And we're really angry and everyone should boycott this show. And I'm like, or we could say, this is these are the people that are actually trying they're consciously casting their show. Mm-hmm. There was clear reason, and you're very welcome to say, "Hey, we really loved it when you had when you represented our identity group, and we really feel strongly that uh, that because that that role was originated by someone from our identity group, we'd love to see that." But but we want to support you because we get that you're trying to do something right. Yeah, we think you probably tried to do it well, and just notice that we've noticed. And when you cast this again, we'll all come and support this show. But when you cast this show to do it in this location, we'd really love to see that representation back. Mm-hmm. And then that company goes, yay, that community is with us and behind us and they can see we're making this effort. Mm-hmm. And I, I worry when we are impo- projecting perfection, when we cannot ourselves ever deliver it. That really freaks me out. I'm like, yeah, we're going to eat ourselves alive. Yeah. No, that's so true. Um, yeah, and if you support, if you're showing like, hey, I support these decisions that you made, would you consider changing this? So like mm-hmm. the the person that you're talking to, they realize that you, they have your support. They're going to want to support you back and listen to you and make those changes. So I would think so. Like, so it I sounds like a positive cycle in that can, way. Someone like Lin-Manuel Miranda, he, you, can, uh, you can write to him and say, hey, this is what we really want to see from you because you represent, and this is, we can see there's a blind spot for you here. And we would love for you to collaborate with, here's three amazing collaborators we think you should be working with. Here's a couple of novels we think you should be looking to adapt with somebody who, you know, with, with, with the original author. Mm-hmm. We see what you're doing. We see what you're trying to do. We see what you're achieving. And he, so you, can you please advocate for this group because we get that you that you're really working to change the system um and he's gonna go oh my god yeah you know like he's not gonna go no I don't care about that like you know like yeah he's gonna do what he can Mm -hmm. you know and I think I would like to see more of that um bridge building you're allowed to be angry like and anger is a great motivating tool but if it's the only tool in your box I think it's if you're not angry you're not looking out the window honestly of course we're angry we're all angry but if anger's the only tool in your box, I don't know that you're going to build the world that you want to build. Mm-hmm. I think you also need like clear communication, assumption. The first assumption is that this person, when they hear this, will will be open to listening. If you mm-hmm. make a positive assumption, yeah, um, you know, there's all sorts of other tools to your box, and being funny can be one. Mm-hmm. Charm can be one. You know, like all of those things can be great tools. I'm not saying you know everyone has to tone police themselves and all of that sort of stuff but I am saying just think about what you know w- what you respond to and what kind of world you're looking to build because yeah. if we're wanting to build an inclusive humanizing individualizing 
warm, compassionate world, we can't do that without those tools. Yeah. You mentioned authenticity, like being authentic at work mm-hmm. um, before Maddie. And I just wanted to say, I do want us to be able to come to work and not and live in the world and not be constantly burdened with unrealistic expectations of perfection. But at the same time, in the corporate culture, I hear a lot about authenticity. And I do think, of course, we should basically say what we've been and be who we are. But I think authenticity is a bit overrated. Um, because if you're authentically crap at something, you are stuck with that then. Mm. And so a lot of people go, oh, I'm quite shy and that's authentic to me. And so I'm not good at presenting. And I'm like, it's so limiting because my authentic self likes to eat cake and lie down. That's who I am. As a kid, that's what I wanted. Absolutely. That's my authentic self. That's in my DNA. But my best self likes to eat fruit and do yoga. And I find if I just do the things my best self wants to do for like six months, Mm -hmm. that becomes authentic to me. It's now more authentic for me to move than it is to be sedentary. And actually, because I've been working in this writer's room and I haven't felt like I've had a lot, of course I could have made time to exercise, but I've been coming home and crashing. Mm -hmm. I've been waking up in the night needing to stretch because my body is so used to moving Mm. and I'm already planning next week when I have more time, I'm blocking in like personal training sessions and dance classes and I'm so excited to get to move again. That's because I think your authentic self is just your habitual self and whatever habits that you developed in your childhood or your teenage years when you got awkward and you know, when you developed a shyness or your first bad experience in at college or at university or in a work environment or whatever, whenever you created those limitations, that came through exper- experience and habit. And if you would like to be authentically powerful, authentically confident, authentically athletic, you know, any of those things, you just have to do the things mm-hmm. and make a new habit and yeah. it will be authentic to you. I mean, when I first started... I I always had a knack for performing, but I had to, for some reasons in my life, stop doing that. And then I came back to it and I felt anxious because I felt I used to be good at this. Mm -hmm. And now I'm behind the eight ball. I'm behind everyone else who went to, you know, university to do these things or blah, blah, blah. And I had real anxiety and I used to ball my hands up on stage when I was doing comedy improv. And I used to really feel the anxiety and the pressure. And I had to learn. I had to practice. I had to go out and not be very good. And I had to go out and feel the fear. And I had to go out and then, oh, that was actually quite a good one. And I had to go out and go, what did I do there that I didn't do there? Mm -hmm. And I had to collect data. Mm -hmm. Um, And interestingly, we were talking a lot about data today at Sneaks. What I tell actors when I used to teach at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and I used to tell them when you leave RADA, you are going to develop a new skill, which is auditioning. And every audition many actors go on, especially when they're newly out, is so much pressure. It's like, I've got to get this. Otherwise, I'm never going to work as an actor. And the pressure is so much and they get so disappointed and they get called back and they think this is going to happen and then it doesn't. They get so disappointed. And it's genuinely devastating, like people crying, people feeling like there's no point, people feeling there's no point. Mm -hmm. So what I would say to to people about to graduate, I would say um, what you're doing is you're going out to collect data. Mm -hmm. So you are going to auditions to find out what it's like to audition and Mm. make notes. So I want you to go into one audition super confident and see how that reads. Do they find you a bit too cocky? Are they 
responding to that? Are you having to tone it down a bit? Are you, are they loving the confidence? Then go into one a little bit anxious, a little bit nervous, a little bit like, hi, are they finding that charming? Yeah. Or are they going, hmm, you don't look like you really belong here. Mm-hmm. Go into another one and try and match the auditioner, the the person behind the auditioning table and match their body language. Like, and just take notes on what's working for you. And all you're doing, and I, and I, say, I say to them, go audition for everything, audition for something you wouldn't want to do, a student film, whatever. Like, just go up for as many auditions as you can get, commercial castings, whatever it is. And all you're doing for the first six months to a year is collecting data. Mm. And I've have had students call me and go, oh my God, I got the first audition I ever went for because I wasn't going in to get the job. I was going in to get data and I was really relaxed because I was like, well, I'm not going to go. Because I say to them, you would not get nearly all of the jobs you got for anyway. So you might as well get something out of it. If you're getting data, then great. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, and so I'm like, statistically, most actors are not going to get most jobs they ever got for. And now people are making self-tapes from home and they're not even meeting the people in the room. Mm -hmm. So play around what happens if you go with full costume and you get somebody else to read the lines and you, you know, almost make a little film of it. What happens if you just go black polonic, white background? Yeah. And you read the lines off on auto cue. Like start experimenting and see if you can get as much feedback as you can off those Mm self-tapes. And all you're doing you're not trying to get the job. You're trying to get information. Yeah. And that really works for people because it changes their attitude. They're going, oh, what if I do this? What if I do that? And that's how I approach stand-up comedy. Nearly all stand-up comedy is written on stage. And mm. I only discovered this because I had to write a book about stand-up comedy. I had to interview a lot of people. And I found the one, every comedian is different. And some people are doing one-liners. Some people are telling stories from their life. Some people are making political observations, whatever, whimsic, whimsical, silly stuff, whatever. The only thing that every single comedian said to me is I write most of my stuff on stage. Interesting. Because they go out with an idea and they noodle with the idea. And the first idea is not, f- you think it was going to be, you thought it was funny in your bedroom. Turns out they don't laugh. So you've got to keep talking until uh, you get to what my friend Sarah Pascoe calls the punctuation of the laugh. Mm-hmm. And that's how every single comic ultimately writes, that I interviewed anyway, ultimately writes their set. There are some people that do puns. Obviously, you have to write those. But still, you have to go out on stage and get the data of, did that one work? Did mm-hmm. they get it? Did they groan too much? Did they, does, it come, does this one come after that one? Can you build it? Is there a topper? So, but most people who are doing observational stuff or learning how to make a story funny, you just have to go out and start talking. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you've got the idea of what you're going to say and you've got a few ideas for jokes and you've got a notebook and things like that and you're reading bits out. But ultimately, I've written my best jokes because I've had to, because the adrenaline of the situation just forces me to do a kappa. So today when I was doing sneaks, yeah. the reason that I started talking to someone in the audience who we thought was called Call, but it turned out offstage was called Carl, uh-huh. but he has a South African accent yeah. and that's on me. Um, <laughs> it's funny though. It was very funny. <laughs> yeah. but we, call, we had Call, and, uh, uh, call in the audience, as I would call him, because that's how everybody will know him now. Um, And uh, he's at one point, he ended up with a microphone because I was testing (laughs) all of the, he was like the, he became the everyman. Mm -hmm. And I said, would you use this? He said, not really because I'm not important enough, but in five years time, hopefully I'll be promoted into a position where I'm an exec who needs this uh, program. Yeah. 
And I said, so your boss's boss. So I, said, so I was trying to be nice to the guy on the stage. I was like, so he wouldn't use it, but his boss's boss would use it. And he went, my boss's boss is here. Yeah, that's And perfect. he happened to be sitting next to Alex, who was his boss's boss. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, then they became like total features. They became like the hecklers and the Muppets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kept coming back to them. And this became a running gag and everyone loved them. And now they're walking around at lunchtime. Everyone's going to come up and try and get a funny picture with them. <laughs> they became like stars of the show. I'll tell you how that happened. Something I said that I thought would get a laugh didn't. Mm. And so I had to go, well, I'm a comedian here. I have to get a laugh and a, laugh and a warm laugh that's going to please this audience and draw them towards me. Mm-hmm. So what I said, I mean, it wasn't a bad joke or anything. It just was a statement that I thought would be, you know, in the moment, a little bit funnier than it was. So maybe it got a like a huh. But I needed a big laugh at that point. Yeah. So I then go to some guy in the audience Oh, no. First of all, actually, I went to Libby. Yeah, you did go to Libby, our co-founder. Right. And That's I did so funny. Yeah. I had no idea. So <laughs> I was just perfect. like, I was just like, something I'd said was like, it was okay, but it wasn't hilarious. And I was like, what's in the room? So mm. I'm looking around the room because everything in the room is something to be used, right? Yeah. Front row. Who's in the front row? Can I talk to that person and make a fun interaction happen? Talk to Libby immediately. Corey says, "That's our co-founder." I'm like, "Oh, so you're paying me? So maybe I move on from you." Um, We get so we get a big laugh there, but now I need somebody else that I can root myself to, and I go, "I need someone unimportant that isn't (laughs) going to affect how much I'm paid today or whether I'm hired again." Um, You, sir, you with the beard, you look, you know, you look, uh, you look like you might be unimportant. I am unimportant. Yeah, I'm unimportant. So great, super lovely. We have a connection. But then I I keep coming back to him. So if I came back to do sneaks again, I would probably say, is a Carl and um, Alex going to be there? And if they are... I will feature. I would feature them again. Great, yeah. If they're not, or if I was doing it in another country, mm-hmm. I would go. Okay, I know that works, so I'm going to find someone early. And so that's how you build material, right? Yeah. You're collecting the data of what's funny. So I'm going to go. Okay, I'll always find myself like a little double act in the audience or somebody. And the next time that happened, if I were to do this in America at the American version of this event, yeah, the first person I find might not want to talk to me. So I'll figure it out through eye contact and playfulness. So I might go to two or three people. No one will remember those first two or three people. That Because people will say to me, every time I do crowd work like this, someone will go, oh my God, how lucky were you that the first guy you talked to was blah, 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 fill in the blank here, so mm-hmm. hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they just don't remember that I talked to a guy who, was, who, who made eye contact with me. I thought it was going to be fine. He looked at his shoes. He gave me nothing. I and I made I made a lovely little closed ending to that, so it wasn't awkward. Yeah, he didn't feel bad. He was charming. Mm-hmm. We edited it out. He, he, I don't, I have no interest as a comedian in making anyone feel uncomfortable. That's yeah. not my job. No interest in that. I want to make everyone feel good. So I need to close that interaction off so that person feels good that they talk to me, but not like I'm going to come back to them. Right. And then I find someone who wants to play. And in this case, it was Carl. Yeah. Who we called Carl cool. for the whole thing. <laughs> so he funny. was probably we didn't know. But he, he seemed happy with that. He didn't correct me. I think he thought it was fun. Yeah. Thank God. But yeah, so like not everyone will remember that I spoke to Libby first. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, even though that was a good gag, it didn't, you know, I, d- I thought I don't want to, Libby won't want to center herself here at her own event. Mm-hmm. So I can make something of that, make, make that a joke on me and move on. Yeah. Because I just thought if I were Libby, I wouldn't want to be, uh, on the spot or taking up this space. I'd rather have it be about someone in the audience. 
For sure. Yeah, so I, she loves that. I read that she was very charming, very willing to play, mm. but also I was like, she'll want this to be about one of her clients, exactly. one of her customers. Yeah. So, but I, but we did come back to her a couple of times to as a callback, mm-hmm. but we didn't make her the star of the show because she's already the co-founder, right? So it's all laps going on and that's just years of experience of intuition. And so anyway, what I'm saying is comedians are constantly collecting data live on stage. Mm-hmm. So if someone drops a glass, that's information. Like I need to incorporate that because everyone's distracted by it. And if I don't acknowledge it, yeah. then I'm not really here and loose in the room. Yeah. If someone, I don't know, heckles, I can't ignore it. Right. So both auditioning and live on stage, you are constantly collecting and using data in real time. Mm-hmm. No, I think this is very interesting. I mean, I think just to like translate this for um, our audience who maybe aren't comedians, you know, I just like in a meeting or something, like if you're leading a meeting, go in and collect that data. Or if you are usually leading a meeting, but you pass the mic to somebody else and you sit back and you pay attention and you just kind of observe, that's another opportunity to like observe and collect that data and then see how, you know, you can include other people and make meetings more fun, of course, but also diving into, um, you know, what everybody has to offer and what everybody wants to bring and looking for those visual cues and all that sort of stuff that, you know, you did today at Sneaks. Well, I think what's, what that's really about is changing the, the focus from yourself to the room. Mm-hmm. So sometimes networking events... I mean, everyone hates networking events. Everyone hates it. Because to me, networking, the definition of networking for me is talking to someone when you'd rather be talking to someone else. Yeah. It's like, how can I use you later? You know? uh, yeah. Uh, I, hate, I hate the term networking. I think it's just awful. But the reason people hate networking events is they come into the room going nervous because they're like, oh, my God, will anyone talk to me? Will I have to go up and introduce myself to someone? What if I crash their conversation? What if they're more important than me? What if I should know who they are? It's just this nightmare scenario. What if I get stuck with someone I don't know how to get away? Yeah. Um, a lot of people text other people going, are you going to this thing? Can we go in together? So I go in with someone. Like it's people hate it, absolutely hate it. And uh, what I say is you can completely change how you feel about networking events if you are not putting the focus on yourself because all of those anxieties are about what will people, ultimately they're all the same one. What will people think of me? Mm-hmm. Will I embarrass myself? Yeah. What if you went into a networking event with a slightly uh, Mission Impossible feel, like your mission should you choose to accept is to go into this event, look around, find someone who looks like they're having a bad time, who looks anxious, standing on their own, not enjoying the conversation they're in, whatever. Looks low status, looks uncomfortable here. They might be very important, but they just don't like big rooms full of strangers, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to look around find somebody like it's a proper mission see them and you think right I'm going to go over I'm going to introduce myself or my only mission here is to give that person a good time I want to relax them I want to make them feel more important more listened Mm. to more loved more interesting I want to make them feel glad they came to this thing that they hate right yeah so you go over and now how do you introduce yourself instead of going Oh, hi, I'm Maddie. Um, uh, I work for Alteryx. I do podcasts. I don't, I mean, yeah. I don't know if you that's of interest to you. Instead yeah. of doing that, you're not doing that. You're going over to go, okay, I need to make you feel calm and relaxed. So I need to be confident for you because mm-hmm. you look a bit nervous. Right. So you go over and you go, hello, I'm Maddie. I'm from Alteryx. Mm-hmm. Are you Alteryx too or are you one of our clients? I'm, no, I'm one of your, I'm an Alteryx customer. Excellent. How are we doing? You know, like, yeah. and you immediately, 
you know, you immediately just are thinking about it from their point of view. So you make a joke to make them laugh. You make sure they've got a drink. Like if you come over to somebody and go, I see you haven't got a drink. I'm headed to the bar. You want to come with or do you want me to get you something? And as soon as you put yourself in that role where they go, oh, this is really nice. Like someone's, and they go, all right, I can't have a drink. I'm driving. It's like, excellent. Uh, A sparkling water coming right up. Right, yeah, totally. You're just, um, where are you driving to? That seems like bad planning. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. So you're just, pl- you're being playful. What I've had success with at, at those events is if you say to that person then, I hate these things to you. Should we go around together? Because we're meant to be meeting people. So if you get stuck with someone and you think, oh my God, we're in a loop. We've told each other the same thing three times. Mm-hmm. Instead of just staying with them or backing away or going, oh, I've got to go to the bathroom or whatever. Say to them, right, this is networking. We're meant to be meeting people. Who should we meet? Let's mm-hmm. go together. Let's do it together. I hate going... Be, okay, we'll be each other's wing person. All right. Yeah. He looks like he's having a terrible time. Should we go over and like try and make him laugh? Or you know, uh-huh. should we go over and oh, now she I think is very important. Let's go and should we go and meet her and yeah. see if see if we can uh, see if we can get her chatting because I think isn't she the one that was featured on the cover of you know Data Weekly? Yeah, yeah. Let's, go <laughs> let's check. Yeah. Okay. Great. Oh, I know him. I went on a ski trip with him. Right. He's a safe bet. He's talking to someone else. Let's go up and make him introduce us. Yeah. And so then you've made it fun for this person. My, well, the thing I say is you have to make three people feel better about themselves. Then you're, then you're allowed to leave. Love what, that. What I find is if you, people who go in with that mission, no one will let them leave because everyone's like, oh my God, it's Mark. He's the center. He's the, he's the, he's the life of the party. Like he's bringing people together mm-hmm. yeah, and you can do it on a zoom. You can make other people look good, feel good. Just saying things like, um, oh, Tina, that thing you said to me the other day when we were having a coffee, I thought that was so interesting. I haven't stopped thinking about it. Can you tell everyone about what you're doing with your client? Because I found it so helpful. And I really would love to introduce you to one of my clients. Can you share? Then Tina's like, oh, my God, I'm interesting. And, you know, and then she's been bigged up. Now, Jeff will talk over her because that's what Jeff does. So what you're going to do is be gatekeeper for Tina mm-hmm. and you're going to go, oh, Jeff, I want to hear what you're going to say, but I just want Tina to finish this bit. Or if you can't, because that's what Jeff does, that's fine. Let Jeff talk, but come back to Tina and go, oh, Tina, can you just finish? Because what you're yeah. going to say, because I think Jeff's question actually there is, it's relevant with what you're doing with that client. Yeah. And so now you're not on the Zoom thinking, I've got to be clever. I've got to account for myself. I've got to say something good. You're not doing any of those things. What you're doing is you are thinking, I'm here to make Tina look good. And to make Jeff feel important, but not let him take over. Right, right. And now I've got a job. So what happens to my status is it goes right up. Because if I'm the one inviting people to the party and making them, connecting them, making them look good, making them feel good, I cannot be low status here. I must be included. Because I can't get anyone else into a party that I'm not invited to. So as soon as I start including others, I look central to events. I feel central to events. Mm I, I feel part of this because I am part of it because I'm a connector and I'm an introducer and I'm someone who makes other feel people look good and feel good. If I'm at that party and I go, oh, hi, I read all about you in Data Weekly. God, what you're doing is impressive. Yeah. That person, however important they are, will love you because you've made them feel good. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, really? You know, you go up to someone, you go, oh, I've heard a lot about what your department's doing. God, everyone's talking about it. I mean, that's got to be true. Don't just bullshit people. But if <laughs> if you've heard something good about someone and you go up to them and you go, even if you're in the elevator or something like that, and you say, 
oh, I've been hearing lots of wonderful things coming out of, you know, the app you're developing. If you've heard that, tell them. Mm-hmm. They're going to be like, oh, my God, have you? What have, what's, what have they been saying? You know, like make it, their day. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then you're that person that makes them feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do this in a manipulative way. I don't do it if I haven't heard anything good or, you know, if I don't like, if I think Jeff's being boring, I'm not going to go, oh, my God, that's so interesting. But right. where I think something's good, I'm working with someone at the moment. And the other day I said to her, God, you're so talented because she can do so many things. I just feel so lucky to be working with you because I just thought I need to hear that. So I imagine... They need to, you know, that person needs to hear that as well. And it really allows a trust to build when you just are really open about what other people are good at. Sometimes I think people don't do it because they think they're losing status. They think if I tell you what you're good at and then you don't say anything good to me, I'm going to now look, it's like I'm admiring you from below. Mm. So don't think of it as, you're not admiring them like a puppy dog Mm -hmm. admires somebody from the floor going, oh my God, you're amazing you are admiring them from a place of, from a high status place. So you're not patronizing them either. Think of yourself as on the crest of a mountain and you're seeing this incredible vista for the first time and you're going, this is a brilliant vista, but you're up high. Right. So you're saying, what I can see is magnificent. And you're not going, well, this looks very good or, oh, this is a really lovely view. Imagine standing at the Grand Canyon. Right, yeah. This is spectacular. Totally. But you're not going, oh my God, I'm not worthy of this view. And nor are you going, what a lovely little canyon you've got here. Yeah. Right? You're just going, this is wonderful. Yeah. Just being very truthful and just stating what it is. Keep your status high. Keep your power. And then offer power. And you will find doors open left, right, center. Thanks for listening. For more from Deborah Francis-White, check out her podcast, The Guilty Feminist. And for resources mentioned throughout this episode, check out our show notes at community.altrix.com slash podcast. Catch you next time.